Well, good morning. It's good to see each one of you. We welcome you out today. In the first hour, when you're welcoming, you also have to welcome not only the folks at Colonial Heights, but the folks at Midlothian today. And I made a little joke about, well, I also welcome those that were at our Outer Banks campus. And uh, as some of you know, I'm still pushing that, still offering to be the campus pastor. Uh, but it was interesting when I finished I was informed that I had an administrative staff, a facility staff, and a security staff that were all ready to go and be a part of it. So we've got everything in place. We just got to get to church. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series from Psalm, from Psalms, and we're going to be at Psalm 44. It's one of the maybe lesser known of the Psalms. It's not one that pops into your mind right away. So if you've got your Bibles or your tablet or your smartphone, go ahead and, and get to there. If you don't have one of those with you, we do have some Bibles scattered around under the seats. If you want to look around, you should be able to find one close to you there. If you can't quite reach it, ask your neighbor. I'm sure they'll be glad to get it to you. While you're getting there and finding Psalm 44... I want to begin today by sharing with you one of my favorite comic strips of all times, which is Calvin and Hobbes. And for those of you that may not be, know anything about that strip, it's a strip about a little boy named Calvin and what is actually his stuffed tiger, Hobbes, but in Calvin's mind, Hobbes is alive. And so they have all of these great adventures. And in this particular edition of the comic strip, it really kind of sums up what a lot of our days are like as we go through life. In this particular strip, each panel in the strip depicted a separate moment in the life of one day in Hobbes' life, I mean, in Calvin's life. And uh, so in the first strip, we see Calvin, Calvin sitting down on a wad of bubble gum. Now, most of us can identify with that. We've had something similar to that happen in our day, and it does kind of put your day off at a wrong moment. But then as you continue on in the second panel, the teacher catches him looking over at somebody else's test paper and of course, he gets an F. Then the school bully comes and pushes him down in the hallway. Then he makes his way to the water fountain to get something to drink. And when he turns the knob, the whole thing explodes up in his face and soaks him. Then the bug that he brought for show and tell gets loose. He goes out for recess and he's the last one picked. Comes back in for lunch and when he goes to lunch, he finds a hair in his food. Then that afternoon, they have free playtime. He goes outside to the swing set, and all the seats on the swing are taken. And then to just cap it all off and make matters worse, he misses the bus and has to walk all the way home that afternoon. Well, that night, he's sitting in his bedroom with his faithful companion, Hobbes. And he looks at Hobbes, and he says, You know, Hobbes, some days, even when I'm wearing my lucky rocket ship underpants, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> now, we can all identify a little bit with Calvin, can't you? Maybe you don't have on your lucky rocket ship underpants today, but you can identify with him. You've had days that just didn't turn out the way you thought they were going to be, or, or you've been in situations that just don't seem to make sense to you. Well, Psalm 44, in part, addresses that very thing. It addresses the confusion of when things are not working out exactly like you think they should. As I said, Psalm 44 is not one of the most popular, the most well-known of the Psalms. It's not one of those that jumps right out of your mind when you're trying to pull up all the scripture that you've memorized. It's not in the top three or it's not even in the top 10 of the most popular or well-known of the Psalms. And part of the reason for that is it's one of the lament Psalms. 
The lament psalms are those that express some sorrow, some grief, some mourning. And, you know, that's not a real uplifting kind of experience as you read something like that. But it is very significant. Not only because it's in the Word of God, that gives it significance enough, doesn't it? But at the heading, if you look in Psalm 44, up there in the little heading before the psalm actually even starts, it tells you something about it. It says it is a must-kill. M-A-S-K-I-L, must-kill. And what that means, well, actually commentators differ about it. Some folks think it's just uh, instruction to the choir director on how to sing the song. But others note the literal meaning of the word, which is understanding or instruction. And so what God is saying to us is, here is a word of instruction for you. Here is a word to help you understand life. So let's begin reading there in verse 1. And as we begin reading, you'll notice right away, it sounds very psalmy as you start off. It says, God, we have heard with our ears. Our forefathers have told us the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago. To plant them, you drove out the nations with your hands. To settle them, you crushed the peoples. For they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you were pleased with them. So the psalmist begins here by saying to us, God has helped us in the past. Now, I want you to notice something, kind of a little aside here. This is just a little extra for your money this morning. Notice that in verse 1, the phrase, our forefathers have told us. I want to ask you a question this morning. How will our children and our grandchildren know of the things that God has done if you and I don't tell them? See, we have a responsibility under God to share with them the stories, the teachings, the blessings that make up a part not only of Scripture but of our own spiritual heritage. I remember as a kid growing up that my parents and my grandparents would share with me songs and stories, not only of the Bible, they did that, but it was also stories about what God had done in their lives and in the life of our family that taught me a little bit about how we got where we were and what God had done for us. Notice there, he starts off this psalm. It says, we have heard with our ears. Folks, I ask you this morning, how will your children hear? The responsibility is on us. Okay, that's just a little extra for your money this morning. So the psalmist says, God has helped in times past, in days long ago, it says in these first three verses. But then as you get into verse 4, he brings it into his lifetime. And he says, you are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow and my sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. Selah. So now the psalmist says, not only did God help in days long, long ago, 
But in my own lifetime, I have seen that truth. God has helped. In other words, what he's saying right here is, whatever victories we have won, whatever triumphs we have experienced, it is all because of you, God. And then he throws in that little word, Silah. And we find that all through the Psalms. And the truth of the matter is, when we read the Psalms, whether we're reading them silently to ourselves or whether we're reading them out loud, most of us skip over that word. We don't read it. Now, partly that's because we don't know what it means and what to do with it. Now, we're not alone in that because, again, the commentators differ on what the word means. There are some who think it is simply an instruction to the choir director to pause at that point as you're singing the psalm. But others note that it has a root meaning that means to hang or to take measure of. And when you take that interpretation, what the psalmist is saying to us at this point is, he says, when you get right here, hang out for a little while. When you get right here, stop and take measure of what's being said. So in this case, what he's saying to us is, when you get right here, hang out and think about what's being said. And what's being said is this. He says, think about who God is and what God has done. So just pause there a moment, he says. So he says to us today, Selah, pause there. Think about it. Think about it in your life. Think about it historically. Think about it biblically, what God has done. So he says, God has helped in times past. But then beginning in verse 9, we see a shift to a different statement. He moves from saying, God, you have helped in times past to saying, God, you're not helping now. Listen to it. Begin verse 9. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe. And those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long, and shame has covered my face because of the voice of the scorner and reviler because of the enemy and the avenger. Now, we're not exactly sure of the historical time frame of this psalm. We don't know exactly when it was written, so we're not sure of the exact battle or the exact circumstances that ensued that caused him to write these verses right here. But what we see, obviously, is a 180-degree turn, a U-turn in that. In verses 1 through 8, he's talking about victory and triumph and success. Now he gets into verse 9, and he begins to talk about defeat and suffering and tragedy. So we make that turn, that shift. Look at the words that he uses here to try to describe what's going on now in this time. Beginning in verse 9, you see rejected, humiliated, plunder, scattered, Reproach, 
mockery, ridicule, joke, laughingstock, disgrace, shame, scorner, reviler. It's almost as if he went to his bookshelf and pulled out a thesaurus and began to just write down all the words that sounded and meant to similar things. As he tries to express and pour out his frustration, tries to pour out his confusion in all of this about everything that God has done. Now, if you've studied the Bible any, if you've studied Hebrew history any, if you've been in church any length of time, you may not be surprised by what's taking place right here. Because to be honest, when you study the history of the Hebrew people, particularly during this time, you could kind of nickname their spiritual journey something like the rebel yell, the Loch Ness Monster, the Griffin, you know, whatever roller coaster you wanted to give it name to it. Because that's what their journey has been like. It's been a series of ups and downs and twists and turns. What would happen is this. They would come to realize their need for, their dependence upon God, that God is the only source of their hope. He's the only one who's going to win them victory. And so they would claim that, turn to God in that. And in that, they would experience victory. They would experience that, that peak moment. But when they got there, all of a sudden, they would get cocky and think, we're a powerful people. We're, we can handle anybody. And they would forget about God, turn away from God, begin to try to do it on their own and in their own strength, and pretty soon they'd come crashing down. Now, when they'd hit bottom again, they would remember, oh, yeah, it's not us, it's God. And so now they turn back to God again, and they begin that climb again, but they'd forget, they'd remember, they'd forget. And that's kind of their spiritual journey. So, as we read this and think about it, we're not totally surprised. I mean, we're okay with the fact that, okay, back in verses 1 through 8, he's describing a time in which they were trusting in and, and looking at God as their only source. They're pleasing God. In fact, the very end of verse 3 says, for you were pleased with them. Okay, that makes sense to us. They did what was pleasing to God. God rewarded them. We, we understand that scenario. We live by it in our own lives. You got rewards and you got punishment. And so we're okay with that. We understand why they won victories before, and we understand that now they're probably getting defeated because now they're not trusting in God. Now they're not walking with God. We're okay with that because it makes sense to us. In fact, we're even okay with that in our own lives when you stop and think about it. We, we understand that reward and punishment scenario. We understand that if we turn away from God and we're not doing the things that would please God, that he's probably not going to like it. You don't have to be real intelligent to figure that out. So we look at this and we say, well, here, it's obvious. They were walking with God. Now they're not. That's why they're losing. But the problem with that is that's not what's happening. You see, when you go into the next section, what you discover is a major plot twist. You discover that it's not at all what you expected to be happening. Look at verse 17. He says, all of this has happened to us, but we've not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our, step, our steps have not strayed from your path, but you've crushed us like a haunt of jackals. 
and have covered us with deepest darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? Because of you, we are slain all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that's not really what you expected to explain why they were being defeated, is it? It doesn't go along with that reward and punishment scenario. But look at the phrases that he uses here. We have not forgotten. We have not betrayed. We have not turned back. We have not strayed. Yet a moment when we expect the psalmist to pour out and ask God for forgiveness for the fact that they're no longer seeking him, no longer working for him, no longer living for him, what we actually see is the psalmist stepping up and saying, God, to be honest, we're kind of at a spiritual high point here. And it doesn't make sense that we're not seeing the rewards. If you want to put it into a 21st century situation, it'd be something like this. We kneel down before God and we say, God, you know that I've renewed my commitment to you. God, you know I'm doing a much better job of being regular in my attendance at church. God, I even joined a life group. God, I'm getting up an hour early every morning so that I can pray and spend time in the Word. My God, I even went out to my car and reset all the presets on there so they're all on Christian radio stations now. God, I've done my part. Where are you? Why aren't you doing something? And that's what the psalmist was asking. Why aren't you helping God? How about it? You ever been there asking that question? Why, God? I'm doing everything right, doing everything I'm supposed to do, why aren't you? Where are you? What's up, God? Maybe you're right there today. Maybe you're asking that question. Maybe you're a new believer and you came into this thing thinking, boy, when I become a Christian, everything's going to turn out roses. Everything's going to be great. It's just going to be one giant fun ride from here on out. And you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, my finances are worse now than they were before I came to the Lord. I got more health problems now than I've ever had in my life. I'm dealing with all sorts of family issues. Why, God? What's going on here? Like the psalmist, we ask the question. And I think like the psalmist, we sometimes reach out in frustration, telling God to step up to the plate, God. Do something. Look down, beginning in verse 23. The psalmist says, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide yourself? 
and forget our affliction and oppression. For we sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. Boy, when you look at that at first, it sounds almost like he's chastising God, doesn't it? Wake up! I want you to understand that's not really what's taking place. Because for one thing, a Hebrew person would never, ever entertain the thought that God could actually be asleep. He's just expressing it in language and words that he understands. He is expressing really a very personal and real relationship with a personal God. And so he's asking him, God, do something. And he appeals first to the majesty of God, to the fact that God is God and God is in control and God is all-powerful and all-knowing. John Phillips, in his commentary on Psalms, says the language in this psalm is the language of a man who knows that God must act. Or if not, he has to do the impossible, which is to bring shame and disgrace to his name. So it's an expression and a cry out to the majesty of God. But then he changes tune a little bit because he understands that there's something even more powerful to appeal to than God's majesty, and that is God's mercy. Look at that last verse. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. You see what the psalmist is telling us is that no matter what our situation and circumstances are, God is still at work, even when we can't always see it. And God is at work for our best. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a suffering-free experience. But it also doesn't mean when we suffer that God doesn't care. And God is not there. I want you to turn over to the book of Romans. As I said, this passage, Psalm 44, is not as well known as some, but one verse out of it made its way into the New Testament, into a very significant passage in the writing of Paul. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, we read these words. Who can separate us? From the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, is the verse from Psalm. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what the psalmist and what Paul are both telling us is that God is still Sometimes in the midst of our situations, sometimes in the midst of our struggles, we can lose sight of that. But he reminds us 
God is still there. Because you see, here's the statements that the psalmist made. His first statement was, God, you have helped us in the past. Then he said, truthfully, God, it doesn't look like you're helping us now. Then he asked the question, God, why aren't you helping us? But then he finishes up the whole thing with, God, help us again. He acknowledges that God is the source. There's a book called Glorious Ruin. It's written by Tullian Chavijan. Now, I want to tell you the bulk of my sermon preparation this week was just learning how to pronounce that name. But listen to what he says. He says, while God does indeed use the suffering in our lives, he is interested in much more than improvements in your personality or your circumstantial happiness. He is interested in saving you. He is more than your helper. He is your redeemer. We do not have the primary role in this drama after all. We're the actors, not the directors. Sometimes it requires getting down on our knees for us to see the truth. We come to the end of ourselves, in other words, to our ruin, to our knees, to the place where if we are to find any help or comfort, it must come from somewhere outside of us. Much to our surprise, this is the precise place where the good news of the gospel that God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself finally makes sense. It finally sounds like good news. It is in those moments when nothing else seems to make sense that the good news of the gospel makes sense. A God who loves you, a God who cares for you, a God who loved you so much that he sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross and pay the price for your sins, something you couldn't do, is the same God who is at work in your life right now. In situations where you don't know what to do and even when you think you know what to do, you can't get it done. God is still at work. So today you're sitting there. Some of you struggling. Some of you suffering. Some of you dealing with heartache and heartbreak. And what God says to you is I will work again in your life. Trust me. Maybe in those situations of suffering, those situ situations of distress, those situations of desperation, what we need to do is be like the psalmist and just kind of utter our four statements. And our four statements might be something like this. God, we know you've worked in our lives in the past. God, right now, I'm struggling. And I need your help. God, I'm going to be honest with you. Right now, I don't see or know what you're doing. But God, I'm going to trust you.
And I'm going to trust you with my life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you. We thank you for a history that says you work and move and help and answer prayer in our lives. We come before you this morning, Lord. And thank you that you are a God who cares and a God who wants the very best for us. And Father, we come before you in honesty and say sometimes we struggle with seeing it. Sometimes we miss seeing the hand of God in our lives. But Father, we also come before you today and say, Lord, will you work again? Will you help me in this situation and the other situations that come out in life, Lord? Just as you've done in the past. And Father, we thank you that in the ultimate situation of something that we couldn't do for ourselves, saving ourselves from our sin and from separation, Lord, you provided a way. You sent your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.